This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Boston School Superintendent Brenda Caselius has never taken the Massachusetts State Communication and Literary Skills Exam that is required of all district superintendents in the state of Massachusetts. The purpose of the test is to ensure that newly licensed educators have the communication and literacy skills necessary for effective instruction and communication with parents and others. Superintendent Caselius says that these tests are biased against people of color. As applied to teachers, they get excellent evaluations and the fact that they could lose their license because of a 36 question multiple choice is heartbreaking. It's an impediment to us being able to diversify our team. But she says she will take the test this hasn't been the number one task that I've had to get done. It's not that I won't get it done. I will. She needs to get it done. She's just past due already. And um, she's apparently going to take the test before the school year begins, whether she'll pass, we will see. And in the meantime, she's probably going to get a temporary extension from the state. Well, Caselius's failure to take this test is part of a broader controversy over whether teachers should be tested to demonstrate knowledge of subject matter in order to teach in state schools. To discuss this issue and the passing rates of prospective teachers, I have with me on the Education Exchange today, Kate Walsh, Director of the National Council on Teacher Quality, uh, which has just released a new study entitled Driven by Data Using Licensure Tests to Build a Strong, Diverse Teacher Workforce. So thank you, Kate, for joining me on the Education Exchange. My pleasure. Well, Kate, your study looks at the passing rates in states across the country of those who plan to become elementary school teachers. The tests are in math, reading, science, and social studies. What's the passing rate on average across the country? Well, I'm not going to answer your question simply because it is, uh, we very pointedly did not look across states. Um, we looked within states because states use different combination of tests and they also use different cut scores even when they do use the same test sometimes. So to tell you what the uh, pass rate is in a state that has a very easy, easy regime of tests compared to a state like Massachusetts where they're considerably more rigorous would unfairly prejudice uh, the results. And so um, what's more important is within states, you're seeing huge swings in the pass rates within institutions in the same state. So your focus here is on the different uh, teacher education programs, some of which prepare teachers for this test and they have high passing rates given the expectations of the state. Now, I think you divided all your states into two categories, you know, sort of rough categories, the, the easy states and the tough states, the states yes. where it was easy to pass this test and the and those where it was more demanding. So what were what were some of the easy states? Uh, well, some of the easy states um, are often uh, states that, that allow a teacher's knowledge in one area to compensate for a teacher's knowledge in another area. So 
they'll use, uh, they'll get tested in four subject areas, but if they score really high on English language arts, it's okay in that state to, um, to do really badly in mathematics, even though that teacher is going to have to teach mathematics. Uh, so we're looking at elementary only, elementary teachers only. So um, that's, that's what distinguishes the, the states where the tests are rigorous and the states where the tests aren't as rigorous. Um, I see. So some states sort of, you've got to pass at a fairly high level on every one of these domains, math, reading, social studies, and science. Exactly. Exactly. There are six states which have actually a zero percent of their students, of their teacher candidates passing on their first attempt. And yet states routinely re, re, renew their uh, program approval. So um, apparently, even though states are invested in these licensing, uh, their own licensing tests, and they, and they decide what is the knowledge they want teachers to know, they don't somehow then expect their programs to prepare candidates to do well on the test. So it's, it's a bit of a mystery. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, sort of conflicting information here that you have to sort through. Well, I think you're the first person who's ever assembled all of this information in not every state, right? You don't have every state in your study. We got the 40th state um, the day after we published. So we'll be at Mississippi came in uh, a day a day late and we'll uh, we'll be publishing its data. But we, there are still 11 states which either have refused to turn over the data uh, one of the states told us that the reason they're not going to turn over the data is that uh, it will look bad. Um, and my response to that is, you're not the ones that are failing on this test. It's your program. So um, we're not we're not quite sure why states see themselves as looking bad when it's actually uh, the programs that don't do well. So um, you said uh, 10 states, but- 11 states, 11 states. The District seven. of Columbia too, right? The District of Yes, Columbia. so we, we go, we're looking yeah. for 51 and we're, at a, we, we're missing 11, uh, like California, North Carolina, Georgia, Indiana, um, and some other states. But those are the four big ones that we're determined to still get. And, and the reason why you don't get it is because there's been a lot of reluctance to share this information by the by the states uh yeah since the onset of teacher testing in the 1990s um, um states have not exactly disclosed much information about the results um the congress tried to get this data in 1998 uh, and require programs to turn it in not not everything that we looked for but simply um, what's the best attempt pass rate? Um, no matter how many attempts somebody takes to pass a test, Congress was asking um, what the best attempt pass rate. And I'm going to tell you what the programs did, uh, the AACT that represents the programs did, and you're going to scratch your head and go, what, what, what are you talking about? So you have to listen carefully here. <laughs> but that law passed. And at the 11th hour and 59th minute of the law being passed, um, the organization AACTE that represents the ed schools um, redefined what it meant to be a program completer. So program, you, the law required you to report your program completion rate. 
and they got it defined as anyone who passed the test. So the programs were reporting 95, 97, 100% pass rates, even though their actual pass rate was more like 20, 30, 40%. And that persisted for many years. So in other words, if I go to the federal government and ask for this information, they're going to say, well, we got a 95% pass rate because a person doesn't complete the program unless they pass. So it just becomes a, a, a self-defining concept. Yes, except in 2008, when Congress, uh, Congress didn't much like the fact that it was hoodwinked and they tried to fix it and they've done some, they've fixed some of it, but the data set is so confusing. Some of it is fixed and some of it is not. And so I would say it's, it's primary problem at this point is that nobody trusts it. Well, how about you? I mean, why did they give this to you when they wouldn't give it to the federal government? Are you more powerful than the federal government? <laughs> well, maybe I'm more persistent, but, um, but the, the, I would say, I would say I'm as surprised as anyone that 40 states uh, ultimately chose to turn the data over. And um, I have wrestled with the reasons why. Um, and um, I haven't come up with, you know, I, you'd have to ask the states themselves. I think some states, no one had asked for years. So I think a lot of people in these state departments hadn't quite realized what they were turning over and why it was such a big deal. I think, but I think the more important reason may be that NCTQ was the one that's going to publish them. And that takes a heat off a of state. So states didn't necessarily object to this data getting public, but they, did a, they didn't want to take the fire for publishing them on their own websites. Um, about six or seven years ago, John King, when he was a commissioner in New York, he actually published the pass rates, first attempt and best attempt pass rates. Um, for every institution in New York. And the results were atrocious. There were a lot of states that had zero, 10, 20% of their candidates passing. And nobody ever tells the candidates that their chances of becoming a licensed teacher are so low when they enroll in those programs. So, um, so he, he and his staff managed to get this on his website and faced tremendous heat, tremendous heat from programs. But um, he, he, the data went up shortly before John King left as commissioner and the new commissioner came along and within two weeks, that site was not only pulled down, it was absolutely buried. You couldn't even get it through archival tools like the Wayback Machine. It was that, it was that um, explosive um, and that upsetting to programs that this data was made public. So when you say programs, you're really talking about colleges and the education programs at various universities. I've often been told these are ATM cards. If you if you have a program in education uh, for teachers, uh, teachers have to get a license. They they have to um, they have to take certain courses. They have to pay for those courses, and the and the university gets. Enrollments. So this is an extremely valuable source of income. And if they get a bad rep out there that they're 
graduates are not going to actually be able to teach because they can't pass the test that the state requires, then why would anybody want to go to their schools? So it's really important for them not for people not to know what they're doing. Exactly. Um, this is a consumer protection issue. There's no question. Programs have for years said the reason they don't want the data made public is that they are unfairly disadvantaged because they don't they're not taking in the candidates of the caliber that uh, Harvard does or you know some of the other elite schools. And so why should anyone um, hold them accountable for their pass rates when they're not getting the most selected, uh, they don't have very selective admissions policies. But what we show, which I don't think occurred to anyone else to uh, look for that we know of, is we show that there are programs that are not particularly selective at all that do as well as programs that are quite selective. Um, so this isn't a matter of just taking the best candidates and, and, and resting on your laurels. Um, programs do have an influence on what happens with these candidates, which shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, but apparently it is. Well, if they're in the job of teaching you how to teach, and this test is supposed to identify the teachers who are qualified to teach, then you would think that the program would have some effect on test performance. <laughs> well, that said, it isn't quite as black and white as that. So um, what we are looking at is the content matter. And the programs don't generally oversee the content training of teachers. Most of that occurs before they get into the program. So it's part, they, all their content work is generally done as part of the general education requirements of the university. And so what happens is um, the university nor the program sets any kind of guidance for if you're thinking about being a teacher, here are the courses you should take um, as a freshman or sophomore before you start your professional studies. Um, that's very unlike engineering or uh, medicine or law, you know, they'll often have prerequisite courses. That does not occur in education at all. So when a 19 year old comes in and they get to college and they, they're excited because all of a sudden they get to take these fun sounding courses. Well, no one says to them, look, you shouldn't be taking the course about the sexual revolution in the 1960s. You should be taking the course about the American Revolution because that's what you might have to be teaching. And it's certainly what's going to be on this test. Nobody says that to these students. So it requires the cooperation of the arts and letters department and the, the ed schools to lay out what exactly are the courses that would allow candidates who maybe didn't have a great K-12 education would allow them to pass. Well, let's say you're taking this test in science and you're an elementary school teacher. What is it that you have to know in science in order to pass this test? You need to know the foundational concepts of chemistry, biology, earth science, um, and physics. Not, you're not, you're, you, don't, you do not need to have a, a chemistry or earth science major or a biology major. You simply need to understand the rudimental principles that you might teach. Don't forget, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I'm a kindergarten teacher. I don't need to know anything about physics. So I would argue that 
physics, uh, kindergarten, some very basic concepts do occur with young children uh, from physics. But um, but um, if you uh, if you look at what a teacher has to know, they're being certified through K five, so they've got to be able to qualify to teach fifth grade. And never mind that they choose to teach kindergarten, um, their certification is up through fifth grade. So that's that's where you, you start hearing about teachers who say, I didn't need this content, so why are you holding me accountable for it? Because- so, But this sound, almost sounds to me like they should have learned this in high school. If you're talking oh, about yeah. educational concepts, you should be, when you graduate from high school, you should know the basics of chemistry and biology and physics. Right. You should have taken a, a high school course in these things that introduces you to the fundamentals. Yeah, but let's not be too surprised. First of all, schools of education are not drawing from the top half of college uh, attending students any longer. So you are dealing with kids who probably struggled a bit in high school. Um, and we also know that American education has really suffered in terms of what kids learn about science and history. They get very little of it through K-12. They don't get nearly as much as they need to get. So um, it's not, it shouldn't surprise us the results that we're getting. And it shouldn't surprise us that candidates of color do uh, less well in these tests than candidates who are white or Asian, largely because they have an inequitable education system. But the answer is not to get rid of the test. The answer is not to shoot the messenger. The answer is to make sure this coursework is provided to candidates. If we're gonna take these kids into our teacher prep programs, we're essentially entering into a, into a contract. And we're saying, we as a program believe that we can get you to qualify for a license. Superintendent Caselius, and she's a superintendent of the Boston school system, you know, mm -hmm. the biggest school system in Massachusetts and the one responsible for educating uh, children of color who are the uh, majority of students within the Boston school system. She says these tests are racist. Because, there's no, evi yeah, there's yeah. no evidence of that. There, in fact, um, you know, uh, what I would say to her is that the one state that's done the responsible thing here is Massachusetts. It solicited a study from uh, uh, economist Dan Goldhaber who looked at the Maryland, uh, the Massachusetts tests to see if they were predictive of future teacher effectiveness. And one, the answer was overwhelmingly yes, they do predict whether someone is going to be more or less effective. And two, they were equally predictive, if not more predictive for teachers of color. So teachers who did not do well on the test uh, were less effective, no matter what their color. Um, and so I think she's not speaking from a point of evidence. I think she's speaking, speaking from a point of uh, rumor and uh, what a lot of people are trying to put out there. But we've looked at all the research on licensing tests. There isn't a ton. Um, a lot of states never bother to see if their licensing tests correlate with teacher effectiveness. But Massachusetts certainly did. And, and there have been about uh, there have been a whole bunch of studies that all but we find only 87 percent of the studies we looked at did find a correlation with future teacher effectiveness which is pretty good yeah but a lot of teachers say that really um this content knowledge is not what's critical for teaching in the classroom you've got to be able to relate to children you've got to have a 
you have to learn how to manage a classroom. All these other skills are vastly more important than the content knowledge. How do, how do you respond to this overwhelming belief within the uh, education community that this content knowledge that you're emphasizing here is, is so important? Well, first, I'd, I'd argue that the overwhelming uh, majority of teachers feel this way. Um, Educators for Excellence did a, uh, a survey of teachers last year and asked them about the importance of content knowledge and of licensing tests. And I think the, the content knowledge was like 92% believe content knowledge is a critical component of effective teaching. And uh, almost all of them um, also answered that licensing tests are somewhat, um, you know, somewhat um, representative of content knowledge. They, they don't say it was, they didn't answer it was very, and I would have said the same thing. I don't think licensing, licensing tests are necessarily a one-to-one -one match to the content you need as a teacher, but they are relevant um, and no one's proven differently, but a lot of people are out there. Um, and I think a lot of people in a very influential position such as uh, organizations like TNTP, Relay, others are out there saying that these tests don't matter and that they're biased when there's really no evidence to that effect. But the bottom line is content knowledge. No one has ever said that you can teach uh, without knowing your content area. And um, of course, it's not the most the only thing you need to have. Uh, it's unnecessary, but not, it's not the whole story. Um, and to suggest there's nothing that, I mean, I want teachers who love kids too, but I, I've had teachers who only love kids and didn't know what they were talking about. It was not a great experience. Well, so you show though that the passing rate will jump from 45%. This is in the states that I think have the high standards. Yeah. 45% uh, to 79% uh, from the first time they take the test until they finally you know, the last time or the best thing mm -hmm. as test. So they can really move themselves up the ladder. You get much higher passing rate eventually. Now, how does a teacher, prospective teacher, get their pass? How do they manage to pass? Can you help out Superintendent Carcellius? How, what does <laughs> in order to pass? Well, uh, there are test prep booklets. Uh, what, what, interests me most is that when we talk to institutions about how they get their test scores up, they, they almost all say we do test prep, um, which, which implies that the content is not necessarily what they're focusing on. It's, it's the procedure for taking the test. So we know in the state of Massachusetts that it has a very low pass rate on its reading test, its test of early reading instruction. We haven't released those results yet, but I'm, I'm just, you know, I do know that for a fact. So they have a very low first attempt pass rate. And I know why they don't have it, because when we, NCTQ also looks at the reading courses that all the institutions in the state of Massachusetts require of future teachers. And we know there are a lot of programs in, in your state that, that won't, that refuse to teach what is scientifically based about reading instruction. So it's no surprise that less than 50% pass the reading tests. What the programs do is, uh, and this is this is by, you know, this is what we're told. I don't, I haven't actually witnessed this firsthand, but we're told that the programs give test prep booklets to their 
uh, teacher candidates and say, here, go study everything you need to know to pass this test, cram study it in 24 hours, and we know um, that cognitively they're not going to retain that, but they pass the test. Um, this is not how we prepare teachers. This is, you know, when you talk about looking at things like the CPA exam, where people spend four or 500 hours studying, that's not occurring with these, with these tests. It is part of the problem is no one studies for them. No one's told that the pass rate is really low. They're just, you know, it's, it's really a lack of, um, no one communicates to future teachers the importance of these tests. But the higher pass rate for those who persist could be because the, the weak teachers, the people who shouldn't be going into teaching at all, don't go back and take the test after they fail the first time. So oh, yeah you've, just, yeah, you've just raised a really important point that, a, that um, anywhere from 20 to a third of the candidates who take it once don't take it again. And that's especially true for candidates of color. So there are higher numbers of candidates of color who take it once, fail, and don't take it again. So um, when we say it shouldn't matter if they pass on the first attempt, um, it does matter because if we want to diversify the classroom, um, we can't we we can't um, just allow so many uh, candidates of color to take the test once, get discouraged, and or they maybe not they don't have the money to take it again. There's there's all sorts of drawbacks in not caring about whether someone can pass on the first attempt. It's cost them time, money, and discouragement. They can't look for a job. They're not licensed. And so a lot of people just give up and they go work at Enterprise or whatever. But maybe it's good that that test is there and discourages them. And you get people who, you know, who wouldn't have been very effective teachers anyhow. And the second time they can cram and get through. But you know, maybe this test being a bit of a barrier is a way of getting a more effective teaching force. Except it's it's just one in the long line of ways that we let down persons of color. Um, you know, there are many, many, when we know the positive impact of having um, teachers of color with students of color and the diversity of benefits us all. So. I, I would agree with you if anyone had spent the time making sure that these folks had gotten um, the coursework that would have given them a level play level playing field, but they don't. And so um, the answer is not to say, oh, good. Well, it's a good thing that they can't pass. If you look at teaching compared to other industries and the first time pass rate, the first time pass rate in nursing is 85%. The first time pass rate on the most popular uh, elementary content test is 47%. Um, no other, other than the CPA exam, we couldn't find another professional exam with such deplorably low pass rates. Well, the thing that makes your uh, current study so interesting and such a pathbreaker is that you have information on many, many education programs around the country. You don't have everyone in there. You've got 10 states that aren't included, including the big state of California. But nonetheless, you have an enormous amount of information about what's going on in our teacher education programs around the country. And I'd say that's just an enormous uh, source of information that a lot of people are going to be exploiting. 
And so I took a look here in, in, and I found out that Cambridge College in Boston uh, uh, is uh, a college which has a passing rate of only 33%. That means two thirds of the people who graduate from their program can't pass this test the first time they take it. Two thirds mm -hmm. of them can't pass this test. Whereas Endicott College in Beverly, Massachusetts, 72% passed it the first time. So what's the difference between Endicott and, and Cambridge? Well, we don't know yet. We put the data out and we leave it to others to figure out what Endicott's doing that Cambridge isn't. But um, I suspect it has to do with the courses that the, the folks take there and the kind of support um, students get from the college. But I don't know that for a fact. And I have another example here. We've got the, um, the Palm Beach State College in Florida has a passing rate of 42%. That's a little better, but still over it's half really bad. students are not able to pass this test, even after they've finished their degree program. Whereas mm -hmm. in the Hillsborough Professional Certification Program, you've got a passing rate of 82%. So 42 to 82, that's a huge swing. So well, what are they doing uh, yeah, but, in the one program? Yeah. Do we know, I, I don't have the data in front of me, but do we know that the data, first of all, do we know that the programs are similarly selective? So that's the first cut you do. So what we try to do is look at programs that are, uh, compare programs apples to apples. So programs that have no selectivity, um, you know, even if the best of those no select, low selectivity programs aren't great, they're often double the rate of other programs that are equally non-selective. And so we do know that the excuse that you shouldn't be held accountable because you're hamstrung with uh, candidates who don't have the same educational background as others is an excuse. Uh, we can always do better. Um, and we, we find that in every state uh, incidents where programs with, you know, people say that the tests are biased against candidates of color. Well, why is it in some institutions, the candidates of color have very high pass rates and others not? Um, is there somehow something magical about the, you know, it, it just doesn't add up. We, we the, what the data prove is that everyone should be held accountable for these results, that there are no excuses. So um, how about online learning institutions? There's an increasing number of certificates that are being earned online. It's a pretty interesting way of getting a teaching certificate is you don't have to go spend a year in a classroom. You can just take courses online and that's become increasingly popular. Are you finding lower passing rates in, in these online teacher training programs? Uh... I, I will say I haven't looked at how online did versus not online, but I would also advise, you know, I, I like to point out to people that most um, programs that are online are master's degrees for teachers who already have their license. The, the dominant, um, that, that's where they've cut into the marketplace, um, where teachers want to get their pay raise, and so they get a very easy master's degree from an online university. That's where the real money is for those programs. It's a, it's not as common. That's not to say you don't have them. You have you have real uh, diploma mill kind of programs like 
uh, Teachers for Tomorrow, which are for profit, um, which will take anybody. They'll say, um, you want to teach tomorrow, you know, come teach. Um, you know, the, the, there's very little preparation provided those programs. So unless they take highly, unless they're quite selective, they have very low pass rates. So what do you think is the solution? How, how do you move? What, what are your recommendations for, for uh, moving forward? It's very simple. Um, states are the regulators of these programs. Uh, it's very interesting when we talk to almost every state official about um, this data, they will refer to these programs as their partners. They're not their partners. If, uh, as I've written, you know, if JP Morgan uh, referred to um, its bank regulators, if the bank regulators referred to JP Morgan or Chase Bank as their partners, they'd be hauled up to Congress and be uh, given a stern talking to. Um, states do not, no longer see themselves as the regulators of these programs, and they are, and they face with the they're assigned the very difficult job that when programs don't perform, they shouldn't renew them for uh, program approval, which is you're handing them, you're handing that university um, a really, uh, a, a, it's, it's quite a big deal for program, for institutions to be uh, approved programs. And um, but nevertheless, states allow themselves to be intimidated by higher ed. Um, legislators will call the state school chief and say, don't you dare yank program approval from my alma mater. Um, governors will call, um, presidents of universities will call. There's a lot of intimidation and it's entirely inappropriate. Um, uh, programs, uh, the state should be defending the future interests of aspiring teachers. And so to do so, this data must be made public so that people know where they should go to get have the best chance to become a teacher. This data should be a fully available to the public and it should be used by the state when they decide if a program should be renewed for approval. Well, isn't the next step finding a way of communicating your findings to uh, a broad audience of prospective teachers uh, or, or students who are planning to go on to college so that it's right part of the package of information that you have about universities across the country? Well, if you're going into education, you want to become an elementary school teacher, let's look for the place where you will have a good chance of uh, being able to actually become a teacher if you graduate from the program. Yeah, it's a very difficult market to penetrate. We've tried to do this before with our ratings. Um, undergraduate, uh, undergraduates don't tend to choose their university or college on the basis of the quality of the major. They tend to choose, uh, especially teachers tend to choose by price and location. So it's um, so whereas we're trying very hard to look out for the interests of these future teachers, it is a very, very difficult market to um, with whom to communicate and explain to them that um, if they want to become a teacher, there are certain universities or colleges in their area at the same price point that will do a better job than others. Um, so that's why we think it really falls to the state. Um, you know, to state needs, the state needs to defend the interests of these uh, future teachers.
But there are also the accrediting. I mean, most, I mean, every college has to get accredited in or virtually every college. And, and also they have to, the programs have to get accredited. So won't the- Well, no, they don't, they don't. Accreditation in education has always been non-functioning. Uh, they made a good run at it in the 90s, um, persuaded all sorts of states to require accreditation. Um, and really, uh, in, in fact, the accrediting body was insisting that universities got their pass rates up. Um, and then the guy that did that work was summarily fired by the programs for imposing standards. So accreditation in education is very weak. Um, and, and, and not what, and, and not what it needs to be. It's the only, um, it's the only profession that operates without professional accreditation. Um, only about half of all programs are professionally accredited. The rest will re rely only on their university wide accreditation procedures. So you've got evaluators coming in and looking at every major on a campus. And you, so you can imagine how little time they spend looking at the education school. Who administers this test? Uh, I assume that this is not done directly by the states themselves. They hired somebody who's a, a specialist in designing tests to, to measure how, how much teachers know. So who gathers this information and why weren't you just able to go to them and, and get the data that you needed? Well, there are two companies that, um, that service all 50 states in the District of Columbia. They're, they're ETS, which is a nonprofit, and Pearson, which is a profit. And so they roughly each have uh, half the states in the country. And the one thing we learned is they do not come out smelling like a rose here. Um, ETS, ETS was considerably more forthright than Pearson, for sure. Uh, but you know, for years, uh, ETS states had been given data that that looked like states were learning what their first first attempt pass rates are, but that the report that states were getting was highly misleading, uh, such that ETS had to acknowledge it and said, "We won't. We promise not to ever publish this report again." But um, it took us adding up the math and realized it didn't adding up before um, ETS acknowledged that. Um, but then Pearson. Um, actually charged states um, to give them this data. So, uh, and then of course states turned and said, well, NCTQ, you'll have to pay it. So Pearson was telling states that, um, that this data, which was basically telling them how many people passed their tests in, in more detail than they had used to supplying, um, they, had to, they, they would only do it if they paid them extra money. Uh, so, and I, they were, they took a really hostile stance. Pearson made it very clear they did not want this data out there. Um, and um, they did what they could to protect their turf. Apparently it is good business to, um, for no one to know uh, how well anyone does on these. Yeah, well, what's the vested interest here? I don't quite get it. Why, why should uh, they not be quite willing to share what they, uh, the information they have? We got the very clear impression from ETS that it thought it was high time for people to grapple with these low pass rates. ETS took a different position from Pearson. Pearson uh, was, uh, they, they, they answered our requests um, inaccurately 
and said that we weren't clear enough. And instead of coming back to us and clarifying anything, they wanted to charge states again for correcting their mistakes. Um, you know, there was just nothing but obstructionism. And I do not know why, um, I do not know why they took the position they did. Well, maybe they feared that they would be accused of racism. Maybe they would, the very thing that's emerged here is that we know that, uh, prospective teachers of color are less likely to pass. And we would only know that if you have assembled this information. Right, and, and, and I think that's a lot what was going on with states as well. Everybody was afraid of the fact that um, candidates of color did less well, um, but you can't fix a problem until you actually see it. Well, thank you, uh, Kate, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I have been speaking with Kate Walsh, president of the National Council on Teacher Quality, which has just released a new study entitled Driven by Data, Using Licensure Tests to Build a Strong, Diverse Teacher Education Workforce. Thank you, Kate, for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.